there a volume on the headphones? That is music from Ethel Smith. You're listening to WKCR, Ethel Smith, the organ player, whose music I did not know prior to being introduced to it by our guest tonight, Brian Charette. Brian, what were those tracks that we just heard? First one was Zinga, Zinga, Zing, Boom. I'll say. What was the name of it? (laughs) Second track was Tico Tico, um, which is considered her big hit. Um, Tick Tock Rumba, and then Three Cornered Tune. And uh, what do we know? I mean, these are... Uh, all of this stuff is emerging for me from out of the... Uh, Ether. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do we know uh, where these recorded, What? Uh, who she's playing with, any of that? She's probably playing with Victor Young's orchestra backing her up on most of these um, Latin cuts. And he uh, was? He was an orchestrator for DECA, I believe, at the time. So these came out on, on the DECA label. Yep. All her records that I know, or most of them that I saw, were all, I guess they were all DECA that I've seen. Um, And these particular cuts that we're listening to are like from between 1944 to 1952. Okay. Um, And the ones that are not Victor Young's orchestra are? She had a group called Bando Carioca. Which I think means the band from Rio, right? Assuming Bando is band. And... um, it sounds like I'm hearing vibes in there. I'm hearing some all guitar, sorts of different things. Some Bells. Some of the some of the arrangements we haven't even heard yet are more complicated. They have strings and they have bells and all of these unusual effects. Sometimes she's making unusual effects with the organ. Yes. You know, she has she actually had us one of the first books about how to make strange effects on the Hammond organ with drawbar settings and wow. vibrato settings. And I mean, I don't I don't me personally, I don't have that much use for categories, but it's kind of interesting hearing there are things about this that are very sound very classical to me. Yeah, yeah. There's obviously a Latin thing going on. Mm-hmm. There's a jazz kind of thing going on. Right. Is this was this mainstream pop music? Do we know her? These recordings, the Latin based recordings, were considered pop music. That's astounding. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that really is mm-hmm. pretty astonishing. Plus, you know, jazz in 1935 was not you know it wasn't bebop yet so you don't hear the same kind of cascading lines that happened later it's it's a more lyrical approach yeah you know not bebop lines you know but she and i want to hear your perspective on this in particular being an organ player sounds to me like she's got crazy crazy chops yeah she's that's what most people talk about when they talk about her, how, you know, and organists, I think, have the stigma of not having good technique. It's almost part of the sound in a way, mm-hmm. you know. Um, I don't know if that's true of the modern guys as much as, you know, Jimmy Smith was is considered to have really great technique. But an organist that I really love, Jack McDuff, right. is considered to be pretty simple by comparison. Mm. You know, and I almost like him more in a way. He's almost my favorite organist of those um, of that period. Um, so the thing that is stressed during that time more than technique was groove and they were playing bass lines too right during right. that time which is not what ethel is doing at all so it's a very different use of the right. organ it's very different use and those guys the, which 
I'm sure a lot of KCR listeners and me, I'll say straight up, associate Hammond Organ. I'm going to think of, you know, right. 60s, McDuff, 70s, right. McDuff, yeah, McDuff and Jimmy Smith. And at a time when I wasn't hanging out in bars mm-hmm. back then, mm-hmm. but, you know, in this area of New York and a lot of New York and lots of other cities, every bar to hear people tell it right. had a Hammond B3. Yeah. And Friday night, Saturday night, there's going to be, you know, mm-hmm. somebody of that rank or yeah. whoever the neighborhood guy is yeah. cooking. Newark was a very big town for yes. Oregon. Yes. Um, I think John Patton comes from there, Larry Young comes right. from there. That was considered and until when I first moved to New York, there was still a very big Oregon presence uh, in Newark. Now Harlem kind of has it. There's a club right over here, Smoke that has an organ. Right. You know, I feel like it's still a pretty big deal. And my favorite modern organists are living in New York. You know, my favorite guys that I listen to. I want to get back to that. I do want to hear about that. But maybe let's say, let's take the, you know, ideal in our heads of fill in the blank, any of the guys we were just talking about. What is the difference in sonically, in years, and whatever other ways you can think of between the music we're listening to tonight okay. and that conventional idea, our modern mm-hmm. conventional idea of organ. The big difference is almost every organist, B3 organist now, when they're playing a solo, uses percussion, which was invented, I think, in 1955. Now, you're not talking about a guy holding a tambourine. No, it's a, it's a setting on the organ that puts a point on the sound. Um, on a classic B3, at the right, um, top right of the organ, there are four tabs. Um, you can turn percussion on. You can set the level of percussion, how fast it dies away, and which harmonic it occurs on, which gives you a, there's a second and a third harmonic on stock percussion. Um, and this was the sound that made Jimmy Smith so popular. Mm-hmm. Um, so Hammond comes out with percussion, Jimmy Smith starts to play, and people get very, very into um, the organ. Not that they weren't into it before, but it was kind of a different sound. You know, and that's when jazz organ, as most people know it now, started to really develop. Right. How else, what else is different between, no, so she's playing, the music we've been listening to is in the 40s. She started playing. Mm-hmm. Even earlier than that. And the in- instrument was introduced in mm-hmm. the 30s. 35. And... How, so I guess it's a two-part question, one being how did the Hammond organ evolve, two being, mm-hmm. you know, what's specifically different about her well, approach? in the beginning, there was a tone, the sound came out of a tone cabinet. Leslie Speaker didn't come until later. What does that mean, a tone cabinet? So a tone cabinet, it was just, for lack of a better description, a more basic speaker than a Leslie Speaker. Leslie Speaker has a spinning horn in it. This yeah. is a crazy thing. If you've never seen this, yeah. it's it's uh, and nowadays there's there may be a digital patch for it, but there's nothing like yeah. seeing mm-hmm. this big box. It looks like a piece of furniture mm-hmm. behind the organ player. Right, he's got the keyboard in front of him. And right, there's cables connecting it to this. And you flick a switch and it spins. This huge wooden box. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and inside of it there's a horn. You know, like picture in a Bugs Bunny cartoon, mm-hmm. a horn that's actually on a turntable rotating yeah. around. And that movement creates the vibrato sound mm-hmm. that you know and associate with the organ. But she doesn't have that. On what we're listening to now, she doesn't. Um, 
The vibrato was also very different in the early Hammonds. I think sure her model that she's playing is a BV, not you know B three, which is what Jimmy Smith played, came maybe twenty years later. So the way the sound was made was a little different. Um, the newer B threes had something called a vibrato scanner, which made the vibrato a little wider than that, what she was playing on. That sounds like something out of a yeah. Patty Chayefsky novel. Yeah. Or yeah. Something. yeah. No, Isaac if you've Asimov. ever looked into the back of yeah. a Hammond organ, it is, I haven't. Tell me. it is really bizarre. I mean, it's a bunch of wires and transistors, and the sound is made from wheels turning, tone wheels turning, and uh, wow. you have to keep it oiled in, a, in the proper way. What, um, now, what do we know about what it was intended to be? Was it intended to be a standalone It was intended instrument? to mimic the sound of a pipe organ. Without now, all the pipes. I'm just thinking about what was happening in 1935. Uh, sound film had just been introduced, mm -hmm. I guess. So, you know, up until then, I guess every movie theater had well, to Well, even in silent movies, um, there was an organist who would play. Ethel Smith was, a, was an organist in a movie theater or so, a couple. And there were... Uh, or there were pipe organs, obviously. Were there other electric organs? I'm sure there were other ones. I don't know a lot about what organs there were before the Hammond ones. I'm sure there um, were a whole bunch of them. The yeah. Hammond, though, became the dominant one, and it's the one to this day that we associate with electric organ. In jazz-oriented music, yes. yes. You yes. know, there are also, like, Farfisa was really big. Yeah. But, you know, none of the other organs, to me, are as complex as a Hammond organ not even those crazy looking Wurlitzers no I don't think they are interesting I don't think they are I know very little about it yeah I, I, I'm mm -hmm. at your knee organ I've had day. a couple different organs like I've had a Lowry organ remember when we were kids everybody had like the they had the little tan buttons that you would put in but they were very small and didn't have full pedal boards you know the thing about the Hammond was it was big it had two big keyboards that were five octaves and a big pedal board it was a very large instrument you know and a lot of the other organs that were out some didn't have two manuals some didn't have a full set of bass pedals um so when ethel smith came along she had pretty much had a blank slate there were a few other people doing it fats waller was playing some organ right right um, to me though she is the person that um she is the person that most developed a sound on the organ, you know. A lot of times she was playing solo. Um, she was playing counterpuntal lines with both hands, which was different from Fats Waller and some of those other guys were playing big block chords, like shouty big band. She was taking a very different um, approach, and I think she had much more classical music background mm -hmm. than those guys did. Well, those guys also, I imagine, by two decades later, when big bands are dying out, and there was maybe there was a desire to kind of replicate that big band sound mm -hmm. for dancers on Saturday night right. in the bar. And, you know, the guy, the bar owner who wants to sell more beer. Mm -hmm. And maybe that was some of the impulse. See, the thing with Ethel Smith's group, though, too, they loved to book it because it was kind of this Latin music. People were dancing to it. Um, after she came back from Rio, she was playing in the St. Regis. And... Everybody would dance to her music, you know. So she had that appeal as well. I think that's mm -hmm. why she looked at as popular music, you know. To Maybe a degree. 
talk a little bit more about her sound and how she got it and what that relates to in, in the whole history of the organ. Okay, well, she was playing... You know, if you get the original manual of a, of a Hammond B3, they have a whole bunch of drawbar settings in there that are called clarinet settings. Diaspin is one kind of settings. What, the, what is the drawbar, for those who don't know? Hammond organ has um, four sets of nine drawbars. Drawbars, when you pull them out, create um, notes that are separated by fifths and octaves. There's one-third in there. Um, they have consonant and dissonant intervals, and you can mix the draw bars. They go out to number eight, so you can pull them all out to different numbers and make all of these different tone combinations. Mm-hmm. And when the Hammond first came out, when you would buy a manual um, for the organ, it would be trying to mimic pipe organ stops. It would be trying to mimic the sound of strings, like they had settings that are called string settings. Um, they would have like oboe settings. So... It's difficult to imagine, to remember, to yeah. conceptualize that this was before. This is so easy to do now with synthesizers. Right. So accurate mm-hmm. and instant. You know, it's mm-hmm. literally pushing a button. Right. And peel yourself back to the to the analog world, folks. Yeah. This is, uh, you know, the age of, think about special effects in films. Mm-hmm. I finally just saw Avatar. Six months after everybody mm-hmm. else saw it. I just saw it, too, on the plane. Yeah. <laughs> it's stunning. Yeah. I really have no idea how they did it. But, um, you know, the scale difference from that back to, you know, Ray Harryhausen's little animated miniatures mm-hmm. or whatever else you want to use as a comparison, mm-hmm. it's um, this was cutting-edge technology at the time. Absolutely. And so Ethel Smith's approach to draw bars. You could call it classic Hammond. You know, she was using a lot of these settings, classic settings, like one is tibia. A lot of people who play in church know these settings, but if you get, like, even great jazz players, they may not be as aware of these settings. They know the Jimmy Smith settings, which are very, very different from Ethel's settings. Uh, Jimmy Smith would pull the first three bars out and put the percussion on. It's kind of his classic sound. And when he was comping behind a soloist, he would either pull all the draw bars out or he would push, he would pull the first and the third one out. These are none of the settings that Ethel Smith Mm. would use. She has really none of those kinds of sounds. How important is the church in the development of the Hammond, either from the supply side or the demand side? I think it's very important. Um, I think... Pipe organ is very important to Hammond organ. Um, The organ is from the church originally. That's where it really comes from. And uh, now when you go into a modern church uh, with gospel players, it's unbelievable to hear them play organ. They play very differently than jazz players do as well. They play mostly bass with their feet. Uh, A lot of times they'll turn the manuals around, like a jazz player will usually use the top manual to solo. A lot of church guys use their right hand on the bottom manual. Uh, Jimmy Smith would play chords with his right hand and play the melody with his left hand when he was playing a ballad, which I'd never seen really anybody do. Uh, So there's just so many different ways to approach this instrument, you know. 
And New York City jazz organ is an, is another very specialized thing that's very different than those approaches, you know. Um, I'm very interested in getting into these older styles because I'm trying, I'm searching for something new in my sound. I don't want to sound like every other um, New York City jazz organ player. I'm trying to find a different approach, you know. You are listening to WKCR. My name is Mitch Goldman, Jazz Alternatives airs from 6 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time. I have to say that now because we got listeners elsewhere. And my guest tonight is Brian Charette. I'm delighted to have here. Turn me on to Ethel Smith, whose music we're exploring in some detail tonight. And um, now, uh, how did you discover her music? Because she's, it's funny, we already have gotten phone calls from listeners who are in a little bit of a state of shock I haven't heard that since elementary school in 1940-whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you find your way to Ethel Smith? Well, one of the things I did a lot when I was first getting really into organ was I would search for different drawbar settings. Um, and you, there's a lot of internet sites that have a lot of information about this stuff, and this name that kept popping up was Ethel Smith. And uh, I just started to investigate her. She was very beautiful, first of all. You hear the name Ethel Smith. An organ, you might picture Mrs. Jimmy Smith or something. No, she You're was she in was for a lady. Bit of a surprise, right? She was very um, she was very beautiful and had a grace when she would play, but she would sneer a little bit in the most fantastic way. She kind of looks like a '40s pinup movie star. She does, and she was in movies. Like she was in movies as I mean, she wasn't a main character, but she was in like ten movies or so in Hollywood. Um, you can find a lot of this stuff, as I did, on YouTube. Mm-hmm. And it's... I think Bathing Beauty is her, her, is her film debut. Bathing Beauties. And she plays a school teacher in that, I think. Um, she's also in movies with Desi Arnaz. Um, she did some things with Bing Crosby. One of the cuts we'll listen to, she's accompanying Bing Crosby when he sings. Uh... She spoke five different languages. She just sounds like a very interesting yeah. person, you know. And so her settings are, well, she published. She was. She has. She also had her own publishing company, which was very successful and published all of her music and uh, some other books, instructional books about Hammond. Um, and that was what she did mostly in the later part of her life. So maybe it's a result of that, that her settings and her guidance on that is known yes and that was how you happen to find your way to her right right but now is she known to oh let's say your average contemporary organ player i would say maybe 40 percent of them know her i mean maybe it's more than that i was not very aware of her before last year and i've been playing organ like really seriously for like 20 years and i had never listened to her before last year so it's funny because I'm mean, she obviously was like a big pop star in her yeah. day, which isn't yeah. that long ago, right. but uh, just, just in a way you. very overshadowed by the percussion, you know, yeah. uh, Jimmy Smith and that kind of sound of the organ, you know, which is still where modern organists are, are taking their their lead from, I think. Let's I want to uh, let's hear some more music and mm-hmm. then when we come back. Um, I, I want to hear what you're working on too we've got to get to some of that Mm -hmm. and um dig into uh
music from Ethel Smith. And uh, you're listening to WKCR-FM New York. I'm Mitch Goldman, your host from 6 to 9 p.m. tonight. And my guest in the studio is, do we prefer organ player, organist? Whatever you like. <laughs> Man about town. <laughs> Raconteur, Brian Charette. <laughs> Brian Charette is our guest tonight, a uh, hardworking New York musician. All right. Let me break down and go ahead and say, tell us, tell us one gig you got coming up. Give these people a chance to hear you. Um, I'm playing at the 55 Bar Monday the 31st at 10. Cool. So that's a week from tonight, right? Mm-hmm. A week from tonight, 10 p.m. You can come hear Brian Shred mm-hmm. here, hear what all the noise is about. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's one. That's one. Write that down. We'll yep. come back and talk about okay. some others in a bit. So, uh, yeah, Brian is a New York musician and a great student of his uh the roots of his work among others and uh my great thanks for turning me on to the work of ethel smith this fascinating musician who i had never even heard of let alone knew anything about Mm -hmm. before you uh hit me to her now um maybe there's some people just tuning in we want to back up a little bit and tell them what we just heard um first syncopated clock then the Scottish Samba, which we liked here in the studio very much. Uh, samba Polka, uh, the parrot on the fortune teller's shoulder, and the parade of the wooden soldiers was last. And that in particular, that uh, might be a familiar song to some people, right? This was, um, isn't that a familiar piece of classical music, right? Is it from Tchaikovsky? I said that, but I'm not exactly sure. But isn't that, uh, it was in the Rockette show all the time, right? And, uh, <laughs> yeah, and uh, Laurel and Hardy, right? Um, but she, they were doing this crazy arrangement kind of hopscotching from genre to genre in there. Right, and she was making tons of changes on the drawbars as they were playing. You know, well, maybe let's talk about that a little bit. What does that mean? Okay, so... Especially in that last song that we heard, the Parade of the Wooden Soldiers, every time there was a new melody entrance or exposition of a of a melody, she was using a a pretty different drawbar sound. Like I wasn't counting, but there were like seven or eight different discernible drawbar settings in that last song, and she would have two manuals with two sets of drawbars for each manual. So, so each manual is a set of keys. A set keyboard. of keys, yes. Right. So you're picturing like two banks. Right. Of so I'm keys. sure that as she was playing all of that hard music, she was setting up her drawbar settings. And you can fudge the drawbar settings a little bit, but I bet she wasn't fudging it too much. I bet she was really dialing them into very exact numbers. Um, and she was making like seven or eight of those changes in a song while playing all of this ridiculously complicated music and never taking her hands off, you know. Uh, Most players, a lot of organ players now, um, will set up one, will set up stock sounds on all of the drawbars. Like they will have, on the top two, they'll have one setting for comping chords behind a soloist and one setting for their own solo. On the bottom, they'll have a bass setting, and then maybe on the other set of drawbars if they're going to play bass with their feet. But a lot of people don't change all four sets of drawbars to that degree in one piece of music. Um, Especially two and a half minutes of music. Right. So, you know, there was almost, when I was learning to play organ, they would say, don't change the drawbars too much. Wow. You know. Um, Well, there were no rules when Ethel came along. Right, right. 
she had just a mm-hmm. tabula rasa. Right. And uh, I, I just love the idea when I listen to music like this of pop music. You know, obviously, you had to know all these reference points. Mm-hmm. If there mm-hmm. was a little um, Bach flurry, if right. there was a little blues vibe, if there was a little um, uh, polka. Right. Well, the, these arrangements, these are so involved with all of these yeah. different sections, you know. Um, and, and I feel like they're like just trying way too hard to come up with a uh, you know an oddball pop song the mm-hmm. scottish samba mm-hmm. you know <laughs> like, i like me the scottish samba though <laughs> I did. it's great <laughs> but doesn't it feel, it feels a, contrived obviously it fe- well it feels a little i mean a lot of this music if we're going to listen to it like with our really hip jazz ears we could say it sounds a little corny Right. One could say. One um, might say. To me, it doesn't sound like that. It just sounds, you know, at the time, these things were so new. Latin American music, I'm sure many Americans never heard any of right. that music before. Right. you got to think back to a time when there were not right. significant numbers of immigrants from mm-hmm. that part of the world. Yeah. And we didn't have immediate ready access right. to YouTube. Hammond and... organ was brand new in 1935. Yeah. Nobody had ever heard that before. So even though it sounds now, because 50 or 60 years have, have gone by, um, and these things are kind of in our American experience to a degree, so much that we kind of think uh, of these things as corny. But at the time, they were groundbreaking. Yes, and this was it was not just them, and there was a big movement of um, Latin derived music of Mm -hmm. mambo and of Mm -hmm. uh, Caribbean music of um, of uh, Brazilian music, Mm -hmm. and we were saying this was when um, Carmen Miranda was here, and maybe they even they worked together. They did Mm -hmm. in Brazil or here. I feel like they were in a movie here, in a Hollywood movie here, but I'm not really sure. She was a huge, huge pop sensation. Yeah, yeah. And she was called the Empress of the Hammond. Yeah, uh, um, oh, Ethel was, and oh, I was Carmen, Carmen Miranda, Miranda also yeah, yeah. was. Mm-hmm. It was like big, big, mm-hmm. big stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, so now, uh, anything else we want to say about the pieces that we just heard? That um, I, it's just I, I was just thinking that it's just so hip to have instrumental music with mm-hmm. that kind of text about it. That Well, you know. she's like, the most amazing thing that occurs to me about her when I listen is that she's always got this counterpoint going on. Her one hand will be playing a melody and the other, her left hand is doing this very intricate counter melody to that. And it sounds very classical and Bach in the approach to this pop music. You yeah, know, yeah. Which... Sounds very unusual to me, you know. Have you tried incorporating some of those ideas in your music? Well, I'd study a lot of Bach. Like that's, I'm very into this one piece of music, Well-Tempered Clavier. I've been practicing only that for a few years. And I also started to try to improvise fugue, which is really, really impossible. Yeah. So the amazing thing about Bach, I mean, he was, his the, the time feel was different, but he could improvise fugues like that uh adhering to very very strict rules he was maybe the greatest improviser in in western music you yeah. know so yeah if you haven't i say this every year you know we do the bach festival mm-hmm. here at wkcr and i always tell the jazz listeners if you haven't 
really immersed yourself yeah. in Bach at some point in your life, you're missing part of the story. He's to me for our mu- for any of the music in this country. He is the basis, Madonna, whatever, whatever kind of, um, you know. He is the person that popularized well temperament. We weren't even playing in the same kind of tuning system before. Kick it, baby. You know. Tell us what does that mean? Well temperament means that our keys are basically they sound the same. If you play a one major chord in C, it will sound kind of the same as it sounds if you play an F sharp. Now before Bach, that wasn't the case. You had all these different kinds of tuning systems. Um you could buy organs from countries that would play in three keys and they would sound very, very in tune. But if you played in a different key, it would sound very out of tune. Um, actually, and how was this? How was this this negotiated? In, in they made the keys that sounded really, really good sound a little bit worse, for lack of a better description. Mm-hmm. They evened them all out. The idea was actually postulated by Galileo's father, was the first person to talk about well temperament. Wow. Like maybe 150 years before Bach, like a long time before. And people said, no, we can't do that. Um, there used to be a note on the, on the keyboard called the wolf, which was an interval that you couldn't play because it would be so um, out of tune. Wow. Um, now this is totally separate from, you know, a flatted fifth or whatever you might want to. Yeah, it was, it was just it wasn't in tune, you know. <laughs> and it wasn't until... It was during Bach's lifetime that well temperament became accepted as the tuning system for Western music. And he, did he have some hand in that? Well, he wrote the well-tempered clavier, which is considered a very important piece of music. Um, I heard Chopin's students only played well-tempered clavier. That's it, one piece of music. Not one piece of music, (laughs) but the thing about well-tempered clavier that's amazing is it's in every key. It's in all the different keys. The music, the pieces are interesting. They teach you a lot about reading music in very difficult keys. So for someone learning to play a keyboard instrument, um, you really get all of the keys under your fingers by playing a complete book of well-tempered clavier. Um, you know. Do we know anything specific from Ethel Smith about? Her experience with classical music. I mean, it's impossible. I know that she yeah. studied with a classical organist in Pittsburgh. I don't know if I can find his name, but yeah, she was playing. She was playing classical music for sure. This other recording we were listening to in the beginning is very classical um, in its conception. So I'm sure that she played only classical music in the beginning. Now yeah. Bach specifically wrote an immense volume. Of music, yeah, including for organ. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you do? You have any surmisal about what Bach she might have been uh, so taken with? I feel like she plays one of his pieces on one of these albums. She does. Well, she definitely plays some music that's like that on this album. We'll listen to more, but there are definite similarities in her. To me, she sounds very Bach-like in her approach. She has a bass line that she's playing with her feet and the other two hands are playing contrapuntal lines which was Bach's whole thing. Bach did not play big chords in well-tempered clavier. There are single melodic lines that as they happen together make the harmony, you know. Now at the same time, I listen to this and I just say considering when this was, she couldn't have 
not been listening to Fats Waller. She couldn't have not been listening right. to Art I'm Tatum. I'm sure she heard that, yeah. I'm sure she heard those guys. And mm-hmm. they were her contemporaries, and mm-hmm. they were, uh, in Waller's case in particular, mm-hmm. also on the front lines with Oregon, right. but also just, I mean, she would have been an assassin playing piano the way she plays the organ. Right, right. And uh, I'm sure people must have been, you know, the same kind of people must have been aware of of what she was doing as mm-hmm. listening to that music. And yeah. she was in New York, right? She lived, so after she came back from Rio, she was playing at the St. Regis. And I think after that, she may have moved to Florida for a while, but she spent all of her later life in New York City. I, I got to find out more about her. I think she, I got to figure she had to be all up in the jazz scene, too. I'm sure she was. You know, a lot is not, she was kind of a private person, I get the feeling. I've tried to find out a lot about her, um, and there's not a lot of information. I know she was married twice, only very briefly, though. Um, her second marriage was to an actor, and I think it was kind of rough. He, um, and they had a bad breakup, and then that was it. She, um, not a lot is said about her romantic life after that. Uh, We're talking about Ethel Smith, who was a groundbreaking organ player. She couldn't help being groundbreaking because she was playing a new instrument at the time, the Hammond organ. And, uh, but she also left this volume of recordings. Um, Very little of it might be available right now, but it's all exists somewhere in the ether for you to discover. Um, Amazing skills, huge ears, vivid imagination, um, the whole package, really. The whole package. The whole package. What, um, obviously a lot of the stuff is through composed, but I get the sense there's a lot of improvisation in almost every piece as well. Mm -hmm. She's improvising at points. Um, She's probably has more things worked out than someone who plays jazz now. A lot of people who play jazz now work nothing out. Um, but I think even jazz people like Bill Evans and Bud Powell would work out a lot of their ideas, you know. Um, she's maybe a little less improvisatory as like a modern jazz organist now, you know. Um, but that to me doesn't diminish, you know, the music at all. I kind of get the feeling also that what we hear in these studio recordings is kind of the residue of countless hours on stage. Right. Like when you listen to Fats Waller mm-hmm. or... You know. Well, these were very. These aren't like jazz blowing solo kind of songs. They're very short, tight arrangements that have all these very involved sections. You know, um, so it was probably a little bit less on that. You know. Should we? Uh, what do you think? Should we dive back in? You want to? Uh, Can we check out some more of her classical stuff? I think that's a great organ? idea. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. What What are we going to hear? Let's play track three, Mars Mazurka. And anything you want to say about that? This is just her solo, um, all of these cuts that we're going to hear now. And you're going to hear this classical influence that I'm, I'm sure she was very into in the beginning. You are listening to WKCR, and this is music from Ethel Smith. And my guest, Brian Charette, on WKCR.
That's an extended set of the solo performances of the subject of tonight's deep focus, Ethel Smith at the organ. Ethel Smith. And uh, we are diving deep into her discography at the inspiration of our guest tonight, Brian Charette. Brian, welcome back. And uh, we're in a very, very different place here compared to... Yes, the Latin-tinged music. Yeah, if you're just joining us, we played a whole bunch of this kind of... uh, Campy. Campy, like small orchestra Mm -hmm. arranged Mm -hmm. um, hits for this uh, kind of uh, mini pop classical ensemble with bells Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. guitars and vibes and Ethel cranking it up at Mm -hmm. the organ and uh i feel like now we're kind of something maybe closer to her heart or where she started out well this is what i'm most interested in listening to in her because this is where i really get to hear the classical influence and the counterpuntal lines which i'm so interested in um these songs are basically adaptations of classical music, all of these things that we've just heard, and they're kind of arrangements for organ. Um, She would just be able to play some very complicated line, melody line, and her accompaniment to that line on the bottom manual would just be so involved, and she'd be changing the drawbars and the textures. And uh, this is the kind of stuff that I'm trying to get into my own organ playing more, you know, having been from that modern New York kind of tradition of jazz organ. This is the kind of stuff that I'm trying to check out now. Um, There's something, anytime you talk about emotion in music, of course, you know, I'm I'm inferring, I'm not speaking from her experience, mm-hmm. but she is really remarkable at just capturing the nuance of a right. moment. Well, she sounds like a classical musician in these, in these last few cuts, you know, and jazz people sometimes miss that... I don't know if it's a if it's a grace or if it's a um, a delicate approach. You know, sometimes I just know myself when I play classical music, I sometimes can fail to get the 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 nuances, the mm, exact the weight, the mass of, of a, of a yeah. single note. Yeah, and she really, when she's playing this music, she sounds very convincing, like a classical organist. You know, and you would over, you would never guess that she was also playing that Latin music. It's very different in approach, you know. Yeah. And it's to her credit that she can do both of these kinds of music very convincingly. What uh, What did we just hear? What compositions were those? Um, Mazurka, Malaguena, which was a, a Cuban melody. The Lost Chord, who is written by, which is written by Arthur Sullivan at the bedside of his dying brother. Um, in 1877, Liebestrom, which is written by Franz Liszt, and the last piece was called Largo. And this, so this is, uh, it's interesting, it's sort of, um, a lot of it kind of classically derived, but mm-hmm. um, not necessarily part of what we think of the, you know, conventional pantheon of... Right, well, you never really hear classical music on the Hammond organ. Like, I've never heard... Um, classical music played like it almost sounds like she's playing pipe organ sometimes mm. it sounds like a bridge it doesn't it sounds like something different than what i've heard you know uh people playing hammond organ it sounds like between those two between pipe organ and hammond and it's not you know it's funny because it's not like they couldn't have 
This is recorded for Decca Records. Right. Which was a big hit label. Yeah. Right? Um, it's not like they couldn't have gone into a movie house on a you know a mm-hmm. dark day or whatever mm-hmm. and managed to do a recording a proper recording of her playing a pipe mm-hmm. organ mm-hmm. or you know a church or right. whatever if that was what they wanted to do this but was her instrument is this kind of like um I, I don't know you know like electric guitar or something of its yeah, day yeah absolutely mm-hmm. and um what anything more to be said about these particular pieces um I, I think I am fascinated and really struck by the concept that one could assume these are pop records. They're three minutes long or mm-hmm. less. They have a clearly stated melodic idea in them, sometimes more than one. Mm-hmm. And uh, there seems to be a suggestion that you could make instrumental music that would be popular that people right. would follow the conversation back then it was there, there was a longer points. attention span you know yeah nobody had a palm pilot there was a longer attention span and there yeah. was also a common language mm-hmm. and uh, common reference points right is that the case today what i think has happened now is there's so much information that people all people and i find myself doing this too gravitate towards a camp and if your thing is outside my camp, I'm maybe a little less likely to to check it out, you know. And I think that happened less back then. I think people were more open-minded to to different things if they were cool, you know. I think so. I think, it, or even if they weren't cool, yeah, it kind of seems like there was a different presumption mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. the starting point yeah. where people were at. Yeah. Especially, you know, I mean, I, I don't think this doesn't sound like it was reaching for some, you know, like hipster. Not at all. You know, it's very mm-hmm. mass very scale pure. kind of, yeah. yeah. Um, Brian, I would like to, I want to hear about, uh, I think people have gotten to know you a little bit as a musicologist and <laughs> your interest, um, not even as a musicologist, as a, as a music lover. Mm-hmm. But um, I'd like to give people an opportunity to uh, hear a little bit of your music if they haven't, maybe some of the things you've been doing recently. Okay. Maybe we could play something from one of your recent records okay. and talk about some of the things that you're working on these days. Well, I'm most of my recordings now are I'm playing Hammond B3, just like Ethel. Um, I record, You love saying that, by the way. <laughs> just ahead. like uh, what her name, <laughs> Ethel? Just like I'm playing just like Ethel. <laughs> um, I have you two little, are on a first-name basis I have now, a little I crush notice. on her, it's for sure. <laughs> um, anyway, I record for Steeplechase now. My second record for them is coming out. Um, in the fall. And uh, this record that you have right here is my first one called Upside. It has uh, Ben Monder on guitar and Jochen Ruckert on drums. What's a good track to... You can play from the beginning. Cool. Music from Brian Charette. Let me... I'm going to spell that for you, just in case you don't know. C-H-A-R-E-T-T-E. Brian Charette is a New York organ player and... uh, among various other instruments. We won't talk about it right now. Save that for the next visit. Okay. And um, we've been talking about the music of Ethel Smith, which we're going to get back to. I just want to take a little sidebar and hear about um, some of your recent activities. So this is Brian Charette from the album Upside. This is Yoke on WKCR. (laughs) ¶¶ 
That is music from Brian Charette. The album is called Upside, and that piece called Yoke. This one came out last year, and I hope you're not just tuning into the show because you have missed almost two hours of me and Brian geeking out over... Our gal. Our gal. <laughs> I heard her first, man. <laughs> Stay away from her. and Take that picture of her off your wall. It's freaking me out. <laughs> Ethel Smith, organ player, since from the 30s right up until... Uh, she she you were telling me about her uh she lived into her 90s she lived to be 94 she did lie about her when she was born though a lot so it's hard to tell how old she was she said she was born in 1910 but i think she was born in 1902 <laughs> and she died in 1996 that little minx <laughs> now, i want to get back to <laughs> ethel smith we're going to talk about her we're going to hear some more of her music we got some more uh of the classical stuff she did that mm-hmm. you haven't heard we've got some more of the uh, cool, Latin, crazy pop yeah. Latin tunes that yeah. you haven't heard. So we're going to get back into that in a minute. Um, but Brian, I wanted to hear just a little bit. You know, you have a um, fascinating life in music of, as a musician yourself. And uh, I know this was your uh, most recent album that you've released. Mm-hmm. And you got another one coming out in the fall. Yeah. Also on Steeplechase mm-hmm. out of Denmark. Yep. And uh, what else? Catch me up. You mentioned you're playing a week from tonight at 55 Bar, uh-huh. which is at 55 Christopher, Christopher Street, Street. Mm-hmm. down in the heart of the village. Yeah. One of the spots. It's mm-hmm. one of the spots. Mm-hmm. Um, what time is that happening? 10 o'clock. Who else in the band? Mike DeRubo is going to be playing alto saxophone, and Anthony Pinciotti will be playing drums. Nice. Now, is this your band? Mm-hmm. Very cool. Mm-hmm. That was a deep focus from May of 2010, an early deep focus. My guest, Brian Charette, that was his first time on the show. And he was, it's, it's rare that I hear a musician in this genre, this fantastic, whose work I didn't know. But quite honestly, I was not familiar with Ethel Smith. I think I'd heard her, but I don't think I knew much at all about her until Brian shined a light. And uh, that was a great show. I wish I had the whole three hours. What you just heard, that is as much of it as we have available. Our documentation of the show is woefully incomplete. I'm kind of amazed that we usually come through with most of it. In this case, we came up a little short, and it's a darn shame. But take that as further inspiration to go out Find yourself some more Ethel Smith recordings to call your own and some Brian Charette recordings. You could find him at his web website and on all the socials, Brian, B-R-I-A-N, Charette, C-H-A-R-E-T-T-E. 
great musician, still, still on the ascendancy in every possible meaning. His career, his playing, his music. Um, it's uh, it's been great pleasure. It's always such fun having him come up. This is our last podcast of 2020. I don't know when you're listening to this. It's been a uh, crazy year. But um, one of the things I'm really grateful for that's come out of it has been this podcast, which I always wanted to do. I didn't know what it was going to take to do it. And now we're doing it. You're part of it. So uh, go to your favorite podcasting app. Subscribe if you haven't already. You can always find us at our hosting site, Podbean, mitchgoldman.podbean.com. And I've got a ton more great shows coming your way in 2021 and beyond.